World War. He built a modest house for himself and my grandmother in the outskirts of Southampton. I didn't know my grandfather. I never visited the house. But a story my mother told me of that house remained with me and still does. Because in the bathroom, where there was a great big roll-top Victorian bath, my grandfather had painted along the side of it a great big spouting whale. Well, to some people that might be fun, but for me, it created an association with water and fear. And although I was born and brought up in a port city, Southampton, where I still live, I never learned to swim until I was 25. I was, to put it in the vernacular, scared shitless of the sea. Now, it's a reasonable fear because the sea can take life as quickly as it gives it. It provides 60% of the oxygen we breathe, but if you were to take one step over the south bank, where I was walking earlier this year with my young nieces and nephews, and actually just fall like that, nothing 21st century technology, nothing a greatest, one of the greatest cities in the West could do could save you. You'd be carried away in those cappuccino waters on the flood tide down to the North Sea, and that would be the end of you. I learned to swim when I was 25 in the east end of London, very far from the sea, where I was working as an... Well, I wasn't actually. I was unemployed at that point. And I felt I had to address this fear which had been with me ever since I was a young boy. Uh, I remember at school we used to be taken on Wednesday afternoons to the municipal pool in Southampton, uh, a dreary 1950s building where the whole experience was made far worse by the fact that our games master was a former army sergeant major whose technique of teaching us to swim was basically to push us in the deep end. Um, I remember looking down at the turquoise tiled bottom of the pool and thinking, hmm, sticking plasters, bits of hair, other unmentionable things. It doesn't really engage one in the process of making friends with the water. I was given a polystyrene float which crumbled even as I dug my fingernails into it and tried to float myself across the water, looking enviously at my fellow classmates who had little yellow and green uh, braids sewed on onto their swimming trunks, which proved they had breached that amazing width or even more amazing a length. So, for all my youth and uh, early, early, early manhood, I, 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 I stood in fear of the water. And it was only when I went to this pool in the East End of London that I started to try and address this fear. Uh, and I remember very clearly, you know, just floundering about and moving in stately strides up and down the pool was an elderly lady. I think she was probably in her 80s. She had a swimming costume. I swear it was boned. Maybe with whalebone, I don't know. Uh, and one of those fabulous rubber hats with rubber daisies on it. Um, and she took pity on me. And she looked at me and she saw what I was doing and how inept I was in the water. And, and, and she, she started to teach me to to make an alliance with the water, to make a truce, because the water is never a friend. It's only a temporary alliance. And that stayed with me now. Ever since, I have swam every day in the open water. I swim in the sea 
every day of the year. Um, I swam there this morning. If it's a February morning and the high tide falls at four o'clock in the dark and there's snow on the beach, I still go in. Friends tell me, well, you ought to tell people where you're going. You ought to take a mobile phone. Well, I don't have a mobile phone. I couldn't stick it in my swimming trunks even if I was wearing them. <laughs> and anyway, you might, might inform someone what you're about to do, but it still would make a damn bit of difference. So they're standing there and you're 100 yards out drowning. There's nothing they could do. So for me, I have a very conflicted relationship with the sea. And it's, it's personified in a way by what I've been writing about for the past 15 years, which is the very strange disconnection between human history and natural history, between what the water contains and what we imagine it to contain, between our human progress through science, through discovery, but then of another progress, another cultural relationship between the animals that inhabit the sea or its margins. Um, so I've got a click. As you see, can see, it's not quite the Côte d'Azur. This is where I swim every day. Um, it's Southampton water. It's an uh, industrial estuary. It's a place which has a certain position in history. Roman triumphs came up this water and established Clausentum, the Roman outpost at the top of Southampton Water. Vikings raided. The troops from Agincourt passed down here. Um, SS Titanic, the British Expeditionary Force. A lot of British history has, been, has flown in and out of this, this tidal region. Um, it's a place of immigration and emigration. But for me, my connection with this place, which is now quite intimate, I know it very, very well, is epitomized not just by the, whoops, the daisy, um, by the industrial seascape, by this is Forley Refinery, built in 1951, the largest refinery in England at the time, a place which pumped petrochemicals intravenously through the body of Great Britain. Um, not just by that, but by the birds that arrived last month, flying in a skein over this, this sublime industrial landscape. They're Brent geese. They've made it their ambition to spend every winter here on this muddy, blackened shore. They've come here from Siberia. Why anyone would choose to come from Siberia to here, I don't know, but that's what they do. And they're animals which we call Philopatrus, they're loyal to this site. And they dabble around in that blackened anaerobic mud, trying to feed on what they can, scavenging on eelgrass. Brent geese, the word comes from the Norse brant, meaning burnt. And to me, their stubby little heads look like burnt matchsticks. They're stalwart, sturdy animals, extraordinary survivors, and they scrape a living here. I saw about two dozen of them this morning at dawn. Wonderful, heroic creatures to me. And they're counterpointed by another wading bird. Very familiar bird to anyone who spends time by a British shore. The oyster catcher. But who knew that this is the longest living of any wading bird? 
lives to 45 years old. Imagine your dog lives to, you know, maybe 15. 45 years. And that great carroty bill, stuck on its face, can actually change shape over the course of two weeks according to the food it's foraging on. Become chisel-like to get into whelks, hammer-like to get into oysters. It's an extraordinary, another survivor. In Tudor House, which is the oldest house in Southampton, scratched into the wattle and daub walls of the medieval building, some workman had created a, a graffiti picture of an oyster catcher. He was obviously used to looking at these animals outside on the shore beyond Southampton's city walls. These birds, these animals have probably been here before human beings. They predate us in many ways. I find that really moving. And last year we went ringing uh, the birds on this place that's called Western Shore. It's a very scrubby, sort of semi-industrial wasteland. There used to be a First World War rolling mills there. But to hold an oyster catcher like that in your hand is a supreme communion with these wonderful animals. Very placid in the hands, actually. Um, and the funny thing is, is that it's so, that bill is so focused on the idea of feeding that when you hold it in your hand and move the body around, the bill stays focused, rather like a compass. It's extraordinary. Um, down at my backpack here, these Hessian bags contain the 20 Brent geese, which we'd uh, cannon-netted, caught in a cannon-net, and bagged up, ready to be uh, uh, ringed as well. Um, they were much less complacent about the whole situation. They got up in the bags and started trying to get back to the ocean like a sort of an avian sack race. Um, but again, getting one of those in my hands was wonderful. They smelt of the sea. They smelt of the Arctic. Faintly oily, glossy birds. Extraordinary. Uh, just really... And, you know, this is all going on on the periphery, on the liminal edges of our existence. There's cars driving by. People who come to Southampton who never even go to the sea. They don't even see the sea. It's quite ironic that places like Southampton now turn their backs on the sea, although that's the reason for their being, you know, the economic and cultural and historical reason for their being. We kind of ignore it. And it's partly, I think, through guilt, in a way, because we know there are things out there not going quite right below what Herman Melville called the ocean skin, this thin membrane, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. We know, for instance, that 90% of the world's biomass lives in the ocean. That of all the species there, we've only identified one quarter. That it's a given, we know now, less about the bottom of the ocean than we do about the surface of the moon. And if you think of the slim, two-dimensional carapace of land that we occupy in our hubristic notion, disregarding the extraordinary volume of the ocean, so not just the three-quarters of the Earth's surface it covers, but the depth, the volume, the sheer cubic volume of that. Imagine going down to the Mariana Trench at its deepest part to 11 miles. It's an extraordinary thing to ignore not to even look out of the aeroplane windows. You pass over the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean on your way to your tropical destination. I do it. I mean, we all do it. Um, it's an amazing notion. And for me, that disconnection is represented by one particular animal. 
because of where it sits within our cultural history, within our scientific recent history, and within our emotional and psychic history, spiritual history, if you will. And that is the whale. And my personal connection to the whale, probably quite similar to many people in this room, because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and at that point, there was an extraordinary change in the way we thought about cetaceans, about whales and dolphins. And it symbolized for me, although I knew nothing of the sort of geopolitics and the environmental movements that were surrounding this new change in attitude, symbolized for me by a trip that we pestered my parents to undertake, myself and my two young sisters, we demanded to be driven from Southampton to Windsor Safari Park, a place which is now known as Legoland. And it was there that there was an oceanarium with performing dolphin. And I remember that day very well. We drove up in the big old family car, this old Woolsey car, and we got out and sat in the front row of, of, of what was really an overgrown municipal pool, uh, just like the one I'd known from my school days. And we waited for the show to begin. In came the dolphin, bottlenose dolphin, supreme, hydrodynamic, exquisite creatures. But then, what happened next changed the way I felt about this whole encounter because someone held up a hoop and the dolphins jumped through it. Held up a ball and the dolphins spun it on their beaks and they rewarded them with a fish. Well, my dreams and my ideas about these animals, which <coughs> I only knew from nature programs and my encyclopedias suddenly changed. When I witnessed them in the flesh, as it were, they were compromised. They were compromised by their captivity, by what we had done to them. And then everything changed again because the pool was cleared of its dolphin inhabitants and a big black gate opened up at the other end and in swam Ramu, our other performer a killer whale, an orca, the apex predator of the ocean, the single most successful animal in the world's seas, highly intelligent, highly social, an extraordinary animal about which we still understand very little. But Ramu, who was a male who had a dorsal fin two meters high, it's the proudest torso, tallest dorsal fin in the animal kingdom, scything through the wildness of the seas. Ramu's dorsal fin had flopped detrimentally, a sign of his stress at captivity. And then, of course, a hope was held up. Ramu jumped through it. A ball, Ramu spun it on his beak. And a fish, Ramu's reward. That was my moment of apostasy. That was the end of my childhood dreams. I realized actually, the world isn't quite what I wanted it to be, and it's certainly not what I wanted it to be when it comes to animals. Um, for any of you who've seen the movie Blackfish, um, that tells the story of the current plight of cetaceans, especially orca, 45 of which are still in captivity, many actually in European countries, Spain, France, and uh, Holland. 
I'm not going to politicize what I say today, but uh, that's one thing which I find a kind of open sore on our conscience. And for me, personally, it was a real disaster in many ways, personal as well as the greater disaster. And I only realize now, in retrospect, and this is only after having written my first book about, about this subject, Leviathan, I realized that we were subject to these greater forces, that although we were just growing up as suburban children in a, in a provincial town, there were bigger things happening. And the biggest thing was someone, actually two scientists, young hippie-ish scientists called Scott McVeigh and Roger Payne, who went out in a boat from the island of Hawaii and dropped a hydrophone into the water. And they recorded the sound of a whale. Not only the sound, but the song of a humpback whale. So an animal which had hitherto been dumb and unable to protest its abuse suddenly had a voice. And it was not just a voice, it was a beautiful, melodious, guttural, fluting voice, an inexplicable voice. Even now, we can't explain why they should create these extraordinary abstract compositions, if you will. And if one instant in the 20th century could have said to have saved the whale, if the whale has been saved, it was that moment. It was the moment that that recording was released as a vinyl record in the album charts, along with Led Zeppelin and David Bowie, suddenly people were attuned to the sound of the whale. Now you have to remember that in the 1960s and 70s, Britain was still a whaling nation, that there were still boats coming up from the South Atlantic laden with whale blubber, sailing into Southampton's port, and this whale blubber then entered the food chain. If you ate stalk margarine in the 1960s, you were eating whale oil. When my mother kissed me goodnight in the evening, her cheek brushed mine with cosmetics made from whale oil. We played tennis with rackets strung with whale guts. Whales were part of the economic discourse of our country. This is a very recent thing. It's not really more than much of a, than a generation ago that all this was happening. So I didn't understand any of this, but I, I knew things were changing, and as I grew up, obviously, I found out more, but my connection with the watery world of the whale was yet to be really established or rekindled. And it was when I was actually on, going on holiday to, um, <laughs> to Cape Cod, <laughs> I don't know what that was. Um, in New England, um, where I was spending time with a friend of mine, a, a film director and writer called John Waters, at a place called Provincetown, that I rekindled this interest. Now, for those of you who don't know it, Cape Cod is a great sandy spit, an arm held out into the Atlantic. Um, we've got New England here and Boston here, and this arm held out into the ocean. And at the very fingertips of the fist is Provincetown, which back in Melville's day was one of the preeminent whaling ports of America. Now, unbeknownst to me, it's actually one of the best places to go and see whales. I didn't know any of this when I was visiting there, and actually I was on my way back to Boston by water ferry from the pier, and uh, I had time to kill before my ferry was due and um, I probably had two or three hours, and I saw 
a placard on the pier advertising whale watching. Well, all those old complexes and paradoxes stirred up inside me. Was this going to be another kind of aquarium uh, show? Was it going to be another kind of mediated event with the uh, whales jumping through hoops? Are they feeding whales out there? I didn't know, but I bit my lip, uh, paid my $12, and stood on front of the boat at the prow with my arms folded, right, sort of, show me what you've got. Half an hour later, out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, a 50-ton, 50-foot humpback whale breached 20 feet away from the boat. This extraordinary animal, this great mammalian mass, leaping out of the ocean, leaving its environment to briefly be part of ours, held there in a diamond sea spray of, of, of water droplets with these huge pectoral fins, 15 foot long each. No animal deserves its binobial better. Megaptera novo angliae, big winged New Englander, hanging there as though someone had put the pause button on the video. And being a literate person with a number of books under my belt, I responded in a very literate way. I said, fuck. because I didn't have words to explain it. I didn't have the words to explain the kind of physical confrontation of that animal leaping out of its environment to be briefly part of ours. That demonstration of that kinship was so absolute, was so other. I, I couldn't respond to it in any other way than a physical way. I wanted to close the gap between me and the whale to try and explain the meaning of the whale, perhaps the meaning to all of us in a way, because the whale has an extraordinary meaning, an overarching, trans-historical meaning, one which reaches back to those days of whaling, back to the 18th and 19th century, but also to the present day and to the future in the way that whale science is so young, even now, we still do not understand so much about these animals. And so for me, it became a great mission to try and find out more about these animals. But that's to rather glamorize it and give it rather more seriousness at first than it, uh, that it had, because actually, I became obsessed. I kept going back to Provincetown. I'd go on one whale watch a day, two whale watches a day, three whale watches a day. I wouldn't get off the boat. The captain started looking at me really strange. He was this weird limey, taking all these photographs, asking all these annoying questions. My friend John Waters said, when I showed him my photographs, he said, that's just whale porn. Uh, and he accused me of being a whale stalker and saying I was spending more time with whales than I was with human beings. And I think rather than as a pitying gesture of compassion, he said to me, you're a writer. You need to write about these animals. How do you write about whales? <laughs> Jesus. How do you write? God, that's a light, isn't it? Um, how do you write about whales after Herman Melville? How, how, how you, you can't. He established the greatest narrative about these animals 150 years ago, which still rings true today. It's insurpassable. What I tried to do was to follow in his wake. Um, it's a book which I think, who here has read Moby Dick? Hmm, okay, quite good. Well, maybe a sort of, maybe 20th, 120th, I don't know, maybe more. Uh, Melville's book is the most extraordinary myth of the whale because it straddles 
the notion of new science. Malbert was drawing on Darwin, on Cuvier, on new science about these animals, about the notion that these animals might yet become extinct at a period when the notion of extinction at all was new. Um, but it's also a madly digressive, subversive, funny book. There are not many books in the world which devote entire chapters to a whale's foreskin. Um, or indeed the notion of two men, Ishmael and Queequeg, actually getting married in bed. Um, and the whole notion of Ahab's pursuit, which becomes the kind of story which, for a while, threatened to do for whales what Peter Benchley did for sharks, to demonize them, um, is explained by Ahab having had his leg bitten off by the whale. Well, in fact, if you read the book closely, it's not only his leg that was bitten off. A friend of mine said it should be called Moby Nodick. Um, but the notion of the book is that Melville invests the, uh, or Ahab invests the animal with a sense of evil, and he's in pursuit of it. But of course, what Melville is saying is that no animal is evil. There's only one organism that can be said to be evil on this planet. And Melville's holding up a mirror to us in a way. Um, and he holds the sea up to a mirror as a mirror to us too, and what it contains. And his playful treatment of the whale as a theme through that book is just extraordinary. And for that reason, I suppose, it's the sense of the shape of the whale which haunts that book. Um, 136 chapters, 650 pages, depending on what edition you read. And Melville concludes at the end of it of the sperm whale, which is the whale he is talking about, I know him not, and I never will. It's a fantastic, wonderful destabilizing of, of all, or undermining of all that he's tried to, tried to do in the book and admits defeat. But for me, my relationship to the whale was a very physical one. In Provincetown, earlier this year, I spent a lot of time. It's been an amazing season for cetaceans. There have been extraordinary sources of food for these animals uh, in, in the waters off Cape Cod. Football pitch-sized schools of sand eels erupting at the surface, actually animating the surface. And with that, dolphins, whales. This is a common dolphin, um, actually not that common, unlike its name, which had stranded on the beach, the town beach at Provincetown. Um, earlier this year, and actually the day before I'd been out in the water and we'd seen this animal's pod swimming in the, in the water. Um, this is a young female, she was found on the beach there afterwards. We don't know why she died. Um, in fact, I went down uh, with uh, a naturalist, Dennis Minsky, who I work with, um, who was taking uh, biopsies for uh, I4 to try and discover maybe reasons why this animal had died. But it was a very strange occasion because I just felt compelled to compare my physical state to this animal, to its sleekness, to the gorgeous design of an animal like that. I mean, I was running my hands along its flanks, those resilient flanks, the flukes and the fin, so gorgeously sculpted. The sense of this animal being naked out of the water as if at the next high tide it might wriggle free and swim back to its colleagues or her colleagues. Of course it wouldn't. And it reminded me of the way we are connected to these animals physically, 
physiologically. Earlier this last year, I went to the Zoological Society of London to attend the dissection, the necropsy, of a harbour porpoise. And it was an amazing occasion because the cellar laboratory where this was conducted was open to London Zoo beyond, so you could hear the lions and parrots in the distance through the trees as this big black plastic bag was hauled out of a freezer on a big chain, like the sort of chain you haul car engines out of pits in, and swung into the room and slapped down on the mortuary slab, on the stainless steel slab, the black plastic undone, and the perfect porpoise lying there. Again, very similar in shape to me, and a, quite an, an a trepidatious experience for me to witness what happened next, which was the scientist with the skill of a sushi chef undid this animal, took it apart. But what struck me was how beautiful it was inside, as beautiful as it was from without, that every organ was like mine. It was like seeing me being taken apart. But even more extraordinary was the fact that this animal, which was untouched from the outside, inside the body cavity was flooded with blood. The entire rib cage had been snapped and the liver had been torn in two. This animal was a murder victim and the perpetrator we see here, or one of her cousins, was a bottlenose dolphin which had beak-butted this animal to death. So that cute and smiley flipper that I knew as a kid is a killer. And in fact, is imbued with the same faults and, and misdemeanors as we humans. Dolphins participate in gangbangs, they take drugs, they murder and steal. They're very human in that way. But just to conclude really, uh, that my love affair with these animals, and I do readily admit it's a love affair, I am in love with them, I find them very sexy beasts. Um, concluded for me, or reached its apogee in this barbaric, brutal archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the Azores, an archipelago of nine islands, which are really just the tips of volcanoes. They're basalt that has bubbled into the ocean and frozen the moment of creation. They're actually younger than the sperm whales that make these islands their homes. And this photograph of Pico, it's the coast of Pico, which is one of the central islands in the group. Um, if you were to just go 100 yards out from the shore, the water drops to a half a mile in depth. You go a mile out, it goes to three miles, a mile and a half, five miles, incredibly profound, benthic waters down to the abyssal plain. It was fearful for me to be staying at a place called Lages de Pico, which is the old whaling port in the Azores, because Azores, the Azores were still whaling to exactly the same techniques used in Moby Dick, these double-proud boats, um, only they were towed out to sea by a motorboat. That only ended in 1986. You know, when I was going to nightclubs in London, people my age were going out to harpoon and kill sperm whales from Pico. Funnily enough, that motorboat still goes out once or twice a month. When it does, the whales vanish, because they remember the sound. Well, we set off. I was working with a film crew from BBC Arena, and we were making a film about the 
making the story behind Moby Dick. And we left the harbor at Largester Pico, which is just on the corner there, whoa, just, just there. And about 15 minutes out of the harbor, a pod of common dolphins started riding the bow wave of the boat. Now, I'm sure many of you, probably experienced travelers, have experienced this fantastic, joyous sight. Of course, that's an anthropomorphic imposition. We don't know whether it's joy that they're experiencing. They're certainly riding the compression wave of the boat as it pushes forward through the water. Um, and we were in a very fast, rigid, inflatable boat, really fast boat, small boat, only uh, five of us on the boat. I took this photograph from the prow of the boat looking down, not through the water. I wasn't in the water. This was from above. That's how clear and calm the conditions were that day. And that's why about 15 minutes after I took this photograph, the captain of the boat and a very experienced Portuguese whale-watching captain called Joao cut off the engines. He said, this is your opportunity. What's our opportunity? I don't see anything. And then he pointed in the distance, and about 200 yards off the bow were some logs floating in the water. It was only one, one great square head rose itself up one end, or a pair of flukes at the other that I realized these were the whales I've been longing to see, sperm whales. Now, the sperm whale is an enigmatic creature. It's beyond description in many ways. It's a true shape-shifter because that great square head, which seems so counterintuitive for a, an animal, which is the world's greatest diver, actually reduces in size, becomes narrow and wedge-shaped when it gets ready to dive. The pectoral fins, these small pectoral fins, fit into pouches at the animal's flanks like an aircraft's undercarriage. Every organ in the body shuts down except for the brain and the heart. The ribs are hinged by a special kind of mucus and they collapse shut like a concertina along with the lungs. The body, the blood in the body stores oxygen. A whale doesn't hold its breath to dive. And then the sperm whale plunges directly down, not at an angle, directly down for a mile in depth and can spend two hours down there far from any sun. We still don't know in the year 2014 what a sperm whale is doing down there. <laughs> we presume, because when they've been dissected after having come back to the surface, that they're feeding, because their bellies are full of squid. But not just itty-bitty squid, giant colossal squid. And they suck them in whole. This animal is so far from our conception and our comprehension it, it, it inhabits, in a majestic way, that volume of water. Sperm whales are present in every ocean. They are supreme animals in their environment. They spend 90% of their time down there. They, are old, they live to be older than us. They live to at least 100 years old. How can you study an animal like that? And also, how can you study an animal which has the biggest brain in the animal kingdom? Uh, why would an animal need a brain that big? I mean, there are people in this audience who can explain that to me, maybe. But as far as I can see, and all an animal like that needs a brain for is to move, feed, and have sex. 
What else does, why would it need to spend such calorific energy sustaining such a huge organ? They aren't questions that I can answer, but they are tantalizing ones which other scientists are trying to examine. For me, this was personal because now I was within grasping distance of these extraordinary animals. There was no time to put a wetsuit on. I put my mask and my snorkel and my fins on, jumped in the water. You imagine I'm jumping in water three miles deep. I didn't learn to swim until I was 25, and I am so scared of the water. Really, really scary. At that point, the camera woman who was going to be filming the encounter got in behind me. She was attached by a lanyard to a camera, rather like half a vacuum cleaner, which was supposedly negatively buoyant. Well, she hadn't really used it before. And she thought it was sinking and taking her with it down, down, down. At which point she was pulled out of the water by the producer who had a vested interest in that it was his wife. <laughs> um, and the director shouts to me, OK, Philip, cut, come back. We can't do it. We can't film you. I'm not coming back. <laughs> this is my big chance. Then I re realize my mistake number one that wonderful, clear, calm, lucid water from above, when you're in it, looking laterally through it, is completely opaque because it's full of phytoplankton and zooplankton drifting about like asteroids in a hallucinogenic way in front of your face. And it's very dreamy and trippy, but not very good for sighting the water full of the world's biggest predators ahead of you. So I'm swimming towards these animals, not knowing where I'm going, when suddenly, maybe about 20 yards away from me, they come into view. And my vision is wall-to-wall -wall whale, maybe 12 to 14 of them. And these are really big animals. My heart is going so hard in my ribcage, I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> At that point, the largest of the whales, who I now realize is the matriarch of the group, because these animals, like all toothed whales, are matriarchal animals. She detaches herself from the pod, and she's the biggest, and she starts swimming towards me, directly towards me. And I think, okay, the sperm whale is the only whale which can and indeed has swallowed a human being. And it's not a nice way to go, because in the old days when they cut open whales which had mistakenly, possibly, swallowed a sailor, they were bleached white by gastric juices so strong they reduce these animals to like these um, human beings to slugs. So all this is going through my mind <laughs> as these animals come in closer and closer, at which point I lose control of my bodily functions. And I think, oh my goodness, if you pee in the water when you're in the water with sharks, it's meant to get them more excited. And then anyway, how rude to come visiting them hissing someone's doorstep, you know, it's not really the done thing. And the animal's coming closer and closer, this great big square grey head. And I think it's either going to ram into me or open its mouth at the last moment. But it doesn't. I feel, I don't hear, through my skull, through my sternum, through the whole of my skeletal structure, the whale's echolocation moving through me like an MRI scanner, creating a three-dimensional sound picture, which I feel, I feel the meanness of me being beamed back to its head and being received by its brain. And then 
She's as close to me as you are now. I could have easily reached out and touched her. But I knew that wasn't part of the contract. That wasn't part of the deal. And anyway, when you meet people for the first time, you don't generally prod them. And she turned on her side and looked at me with this eye about the size of a grapefruit. I mean, almost risibly small in comparison to the size of the animal, rather like a, an elephant, in fact. And actually, sperm whales are quite comparable to elephants in many ways. And it was absolutely sentient. It was reading me. It was trying to understand me. Ironic, I'd spent 15 years trying to understand and describe a whale, and here was a whale trying to understand and describe me. And then she dove from this fantastic Eve Klein blue into the profound black. And I just remember laughing because it was all my childhood dreams. It was that whale that my grandfather painted on the bath. It was the whale of my encyclopedias, the whale of my imagining, of all our imaginings. It's the whale that we all drew as kids, come to life, like a CGI recreation. This sense of utter distance, but utter connection, of silence, but complete sensory surroundedness. And she disappeared, and I went back to shore, and for the next three nights I couldn't sleep because every time I closed my eyes, the whale swam into my head. Hal Whitehead, who's a wonderful scientist, who's probably the preeminent scientist working on sperm whales um, and their culture, um, told me how he'd been in Sri Lanka working with a young PhD student, and she'd um, dove with sperm whales and been echolocated in the same way and claimed never to have been mentally right there afterwards, which obviously explains a lot. I'm just going to finish with a couple of pictures of the Azores and a wonderful group of sperm whales, which demonstrates so much of why these animals are possibly the most beautiful animals in the ocean, to my mind. This is a big female. She's got four, one, two, three, and behind that whale, a little tiny whale, four juveniles with her. Only one of those whales, probably genetically related to her, only one of them is her calf. She's babysitting. She's looking after these animals. While their mothers, because the calves can't dive, the mothers are down there searching for food, using that echolocation to search for food. It's an example of what we call alloparental care. To me, it speaks of a kind of altruism. And I know that we project human qualities on animals at our peril, but we are human beings, and we've only got human words to describe them. And that's how I want to leave it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Can we have the lights up, please? We can have just a few minutes, perhaps, for some questions. And you're coming to the reception. Yeah. yeah so all evening. Um, I, I was properly, I was breathless. <laughs> and you just, uh, I'm not very breathless. <laughs> Thoughts? We had a conversation earlier on which verged on a war about whether animals have consciousness mm. or not. Mm. You're, in the absence of um, knowledge, your instinct on this, your view? Well, I, I can't help but think it's sentience that you read in those eyes. I mean, 
it's not the eye of a horse or even of a dog or even, I mean, there are, you know, there's a, there's a move now by certain scientists um, and conservationists to class cetaceans as non-human persons, um, along, with, along with primates and elephants. Um, I mean, for good reasons, because these are very abused animals. Um, we know the plight of elephants, we know the plight of rhinos. Who knows or who knew that these animals are the most polluted animals on the planet? That where they sit on the food chain, everything, PCBs, heavy metals, all ends up in these animals. They are living repositories of the filth we pump into the ocean. Plus the fact that these animals whose supreme sense is the sense of sound is now completely undermined by the amount of noise we are creating in the ocean. Not only the noise of ships, you know, imagine a hundred years ago, there was, n there was no noise in the ocean. None at all, apart from the natural noise that they created. But not only that, we have military sonar, seismic surveys, all this really impacts in a huge way on these animals. I mean, they are victims twice over from humans, from the industrial exploitation of them during the Industrial Revolution when they lubricated and lit the Industrial Revolution and the whale streets of New York, London, Paris and Berlin were all lit by whale oil, you know. The, the, the spinning jennies and, in, and, and machines of the Industrial Revolution were lubricated by whale oil until the discovery or the, of, of mineral oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859. You know, the world relied on whale oil. Um, so then, you know, we take up mineral oil, um, all that that's done to us, um, and now the byproducts of that, of that, of what we now call the Anthropocene, uh, and I think it's very interesting to look at the where the, the whale sits in the Anthropocene, you know, this perceived period at which we, we now talk about a new geological age to follow the Holocene, which is dated now variously either to the beginning of agriculture or the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the, and the exponential growth in, um, in carbon um, uh, in the air, um, or actually 1950 is one of the recent dates, which is now regarded as the great acceleration of species extinction. Um, but you know, the whale, you know, people talk about it uh, in the 60s and 70s where it was the symbol for those environmental movements as being a, like a canary of the sea, you know, sort of a, a canary. But you know, it's so much more than that, you know. It's, it's so it's very difficult to look at an animal like that and just look at it for just what it is because of what it's been to us. So from a kind of almost existential point of view, and it's quite funny because Hal Whitehead is a wonderful scientist and his book, Sperm Whales, Social Evolution in the Ocean, it's one of the best modern texts on sperm whales. At the end of it, he posits the notion that the whales, which have both the ability for tool use, for highly complex communication, but also a sense of their abstract selves, a sense of what he calls actually a sense of collective individuality. These animals which are very socially bound act sort of collectively but individually, that they might have even started to rationalize their place within the world to mm. the extent that he actually hypothesizes rather mischievously that they might have developed a sense of religion. Now, he, 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 he's just upping the ante there. Mm. Because, basically, we know so little about them. 
We know so little about these animals. We know they've got big brains. We know that their society and the way they behave is very complex and sophisticated. Um, this is all, you know? I mean, the thing is, in 100 years' time, are we going to turn around and say, either, oh, you were just moaning about nothing, you know, they're just, that's all they are, blah, blah, or will we discover that, you know, there are so many aspects of the animal world now where those boundaries are blurring, the boundaries between human and animal. I think <laughs> on that, in fact, perfect note. Is there a question? Yeah. Oh. Oh, so, 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 oh, you did have them up a minute ago. Uh, <laughs> surprising me. It was all quiet. Oh, sorry. L no, lady there, hundreds of questions. What you talked about the whales, but I was very interested about your relationship with them because um, I've had the luck over the past maybe three or four years um, to go sailing on a wooden boat in Svalbard. So oh, I've yeah. sailed all the way up there. I'm on this boat. If I fall off, I'm dead. I'm no winches. Mm. I've worked myself to death, you know, six, three hours on watch, six hours off. And what I found when I got there was all the landscape that everybody writes about so elegiacly and with such passion, to me, was terribly predatory. It was going to kill me any moment. Mm -hmm. And the whales became just like another part of nature, like the polar bears, like the terns, which were telling me the weather and the fish and everything that was going on. And what I'm very interested in is, to what extent do you think scientists' relationship is actually limited by the fact that they're using all this modern technology to understand and to get there. So if you were knackered from having sailed all that time and about <laughs> to go down with an iceberg, yeah. would you see whales in the same way? It's really my question. That's a really good question because it is so difficult to study these animals, especially sperm whales, which are pelagic animals. You know, they're not coastal animals. I mean, humpbacks are easier to, to study in a way. And the, the population of humpbacks off Cape Cod are the, one of the most studied populations in the world. I mean, they're individually named we know them individually, you know, I could tell you their names, not all 4,000 of them, but I mean many of them, because they've got these black and white patterns on their flukes, which, are, you know, you, you'll have seen humpbacks, and it's like, as individual as a finger, fingerprint to a human being. So, it's, yeah, as you say, it's really difficult. I find it very interesting that whale scientists are some of the nuttiest scientists I know. And I think it's because they spent a lot of time at sea, <laughs> and as you intimate, it kind of drives you a bit nutty. It's, it's a kind of, you know, a literally out there environment. Also, they're dealing with parameters of things which are still, I mean, like Hal is just, I mean, he's a great, very, very rigorous scientist, but he, he throws this stuff out there, you know. Um, I don't know any of the answers to these questions. This is why it's so interesting to talk about them, um, especially from in the way that this whole event is structured in a cross-disciplinary way, because all this stuff, I'm not a scientist, I have no science background at all, but all this stuff feeds into a, a bigger picture, I think. Neither did most doctors, to be honest. <laughs> um, are there any other questions? There's one, one at the top. Hi, uh, thank you for um, sharing your um, experience of uh, beauty, intimacy, um, you know, in a very dynamic way. Um, I, I, there are a couple of things that resonate with other things I've heard today. And one of, well, there are, t there are two elements, I suppose. One is this call to wilderness, this call to, to something beyond our limits, beyond our, our, um, our influence, supposedly. Mm. And also 
the call back again. If I recall correctly, Ishmael came back in Queequeg's coffin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and whether it is necessary to come back having experienced some loss to fully comprehend the beauty of what is there or if there is an alternative for us? I can only speak as a writer, as I say, and it's very interesting how much um, nature writing now deals with an investment of human emotion, especially grief. Um, Helen MacDonald's wonderful book, which won the Samuel Johnson two weeks ago, about training a hawk, is written in tandem with the story of her grief of the death of her early, of the early death of her father in his 40s. Um, you know, the, the, the natural world, because of our supposed dominion over it, you know, there is that sense of the fact that we can uh, project ourselves on it and, and see our emotions reflected in it in a way that seems to maybe dignify ourselves about our existence. And that I think a lot of people you know, our relationship with animals is a very prob problematic one, you know. I think, for instance, and I was thinking about this when I was writing Vyathan, about our relationship with guide animals, like guide dogs and monkeys as well. And, you know, what kind of life are we creating for those animals? You know, I, I see someone walking a guide dog. I mean, it's a fantastic <laughs> thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but that dog is shackled. You know, uh, when does it ever get to play? I mean, sometimes they do. But there's kind of the utility of the, of, of the animal world to us will always be that in a way, you know. Um, while we still eat meat, um, you know, while we still have uses for animals, they will only ever be that in a way. We're not going to be freed of that ever, I don't think, you know. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know the answer, but as you intimate, it just throws up more questions. One very last question there. Thank you. Reverse that position slightly. Um, your obsession with them. Have you got any relationship to the mythology of whales through time, and have you come to any great understanding of where your obsessions come from, or what the whale's gaze has given to you, given back to you? What? What's been drawing you to it all this time, I suppose? Well, uh, as a writer, I mean, they are just the most fantastic subject to write about because you can, they're freighted with so much meaning and so much history and myth, as you say. It struck me, I was in New Zealand um, doing some whale watching and spotting with the Maori people, and the Maori people believe they are intimately related to whales. They actually believe they are genetically related to whales, that they came to Aotearoa, which is the name they have for New Zealand, the land of the long white cloud, on the back of a whale. That's the story behind Whale Ride. I'm sure many of you know that film and book. Um, and, I mean, it turns out that probably the Polynesian people were following the migratory routes of southern rights and humpback whales to, to New Zealand. Um, but the Maori people have more names for whales than we do. That, in fact, they've got names for whales which we have never seen alive. I mean, there are whales, beat whales, which are extraordinary animals, and these are big animals. They're like 15 foot long, um, which we have never seen. We know, no one's ever seen one alive, you know. 
And they have this intimate relationship with them. They never whaled. They didn't hunt whales, but they take stranded whales and they would use every part of them. One of the great sort of things about the whaling days of, of the West was that we dumped the meat. No one ate the meat. It was just the oil we used. Um, and they use every part of it and they have a kind of veneration for these whales. When stranded whales wash up in New Zealand beaches, even now a Maori elder will go down and spend the night with them, um, uh, praying for them. Um, now, it's easy to kind of like simplify sort of indigenous myth in that way and sort of think how cute it is maybe. Uh, but when you see it in action, when you go out with a Maori person, they show you a sperm whale who they think of as their grandfather. It's really moving, you know. Uh, and it's a, it's a connection with the natural world, which obviously we have completely lost, really. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I think that's a really good observation. I think that the, 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 the myths, you know, when you talk about the Haida people of Northwest Pacific, their relationship to Orca, which they regard as a kind of creation god in, in, the, in their belief system. Um, you know, think about the uh, Buddhists in Japan, the people who were hunting whales, yet burying embryos uh, under Shinto shrines, and it's not Buddhist, obviously, but in, uh, the, 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 there's very subtle relationships in those, those stories, which I think speak to us now, be because of their purity, because they're not, they're, there is a purity to them, in a way. Um, wonderful, extraordinary. Thank you a lot. Um, a big round of applause, please. For <laughs>